Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's great to be with you on this Saturday morning, whether you're at the workplace or just kicking around home. That's from the former release by Enigma, the ultimate acoustic experience from the recording called Cobalt, one of my favorite tunes by them called Sky Dancer. What's in your coffee cup this morning? We were just talking about some uh, customs of people around the world drinking coffee as we're all consuming some here in the air studio. Um, I had an experience when I was a kid that my mother, uh, God bless her soul, she only served me tea when I was ill. So I developed this uh, Skinnerian Pavlovian response to tea that I like some of the smells of tea, but if I start drinking it, it reminds me of when I was a kid and ill or sick. <laughs> and uh, for some reason, back then in the 50s, it was like Lipton's tea and dry toast, and that was supposed to help mm. your stomach if you weren't feeling good. So I'm a black coffee guy, and boy, am I. This is Jack Reacher Coffee. The uh, author, Lee Child, has got the Jack Reacher series, and he just commissioned a special coffee to be done in honor of the character Jack Reacher. So we are drinking that, and uh, I might say that it's quite quite good. Yes, it is. I, I keep saying I'm just here for the coffee. No, I, don't, I know that's not true, Jim. You're here for a lot more, and you're valued, and we appreciate that. Well, you're good. You should. You know, I'm we, modest, too. Are you okay, Cole? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I tried to sneeze discreetly. <laughs> We're just talking about consuming things here with your coffee and sneezing. <laughs> <clears throat> We're a lively bunch this morning. Let's invite somebody else to join us. Uh, here is Charlene with the Capital Humane Society, and this is Pet Talk. Hi, Charlene. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you? Thank you. Um, I couldn't be better. I'm enjoying this Saturday morning, and it's great to be with you. Tell us what's new or what's going on at the Capital Humane Society. Uh, it looks like we have a couple of fundraisers that people might be interested in. We have information on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. Uh, the Spill is doing a benefit for us. It's a beer tasting uh, benefit, and so you could consider going to that. Um, and then also um, there is uh, tickets available for KC fans. Um, it's a $10 donation that will come to Capital Humane Society. So, again, more information and details are available on our website. Uh, the Corvette raffle is going to end June 30th. I'm looking at the picture right there of that very cool Corvette that's been donated and ra be raffled off. Boy, I'm still... I'm on the fence. I mean, I've got a lot of uses for a $100 bill, but that would be, wouldn't that be fun? If I felt like somehow I was, I was lucky, boy, what a great looking car. And of course, it's for a good cause as well. Uh, Charlene with the Capital Humane Society. We're looking at the website, capitalhumanesociety.org. And who would you like to start out with? We can start out with dogs. And we will start with bandits. And Banda is a very happy two-year-old blue healer, a neutered male, uh, very spunky, wants to have fun, very smart breed. So he's looking for a family that can keep up with him. Um, he is not compatible with livestock, so he needs a home without that. 
Uh, he must meet other dogs to make sure they're going to get along and meet children as well. Um, but he'll do fine with a family that understands his uh, personality and energy needs and is happy to work with him. Well, you know, it might just be the picture, but it actually looks like he does have some blue on his snout. <laughs> yeah. Um, anybody out there with the nickname of Smokey, need I go any farther with this? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, Bandit's a great-looking dog. I love his, as Jim was saying, his facial markings. Uh, take a look at his picture at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And he's got a buddy, and that buddy is? Next up is Precious, and she is a Pitbull Shepherd mix. Very, very cute. She always has a big old grin on her face. She's about oh, yeah. three years old. <laughs> very exuberant. Always excited to see you and go on an adventure. Uh, so she needs somebody who has plenty of energy, just like she does. Um, but she's going to be very devoted to somebody who has the time to work with her and give her the attention and care she deserves. Wow, and you can really see the shepherd in her. It, uh-huh. it does not look much like a pit bull at all. Uh, both these dogs so far would be great dogs for your permanent weight loss program, taking the dog out for a walk twice a day. Um, Mac and I have got this uh, this evening. We wait until the heat's gone right before sunset, and we take our walk. And uh, Charlene, he lays out, uh, when I allow him to go outside because of this heat, when he lays out in the backyard, he'll watch my back window. And when he sees me in that window, about dusk, he's starting to get on his feet saying, yep, it's time. Come on, guy. Get out here. Come on. <laughs> they know. <laughs> oh, they do. And I, we've, we've walked the same area so many times, I don't even think really that... that I would need to guide him. I could just basically follow him, but he likes to walk along my side. That's so awesome. And I think you brought up an excellent point that it is just so hot right now. People need to be responsible like you Mm -hmm. and wait until it's cooler. Uh, Keep the walk shorter and just be, you know, really wise that the animals can overheat too. Yes, there is a heat advisory for this weekend and the highest forecast to be 98 today. So it's going to be a hot one. Yep. Any, any questions, just go out and put your uh, bare foot or your palm of your hand yeah. on the concrete. If it's hot for you, it's going to be hot for that dog's paw. And don't even think about putting them in a vehicle. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Even with the windows cracked, it's way too hot and dangerous. And every year you hear the stories and it's like, gosh, aren't you thinking? Uh, no, they aren't. No, obviously. Bandit Precious, we've got a third dog and he or she is... That would be Carl, and he is a lab mix, a year old, very bright, energetic guy, again, uh, full of adventure, wants very much to go for walks and runs, may even be a great running partner. Uh, So if you're looking for a high-energy companion, Carl might be a great one for you. You know, it just looks like Carl is the perfect name for that dog. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, I'm Carl. Let's go. Bandit, Precious, and Carl, three great dogs. Um, their pictures and other dogs' pictures are up at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Charlene, what are your hours open today and tomorrow? We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Okay, we've got uh, kittens and cats for adoption, and who's first? We're going to start with Scrabble. 
And Scrabble is a very nice cat. He is wanting to be your only cat, though. <laughs> so, But he feels he's all the feline anybody needs. He's about two years old, very fluffy. He's white with orange oh, tabby markings. Yeah. Yes, bright-eyed, always ready to play. Uh, so, again, if you don't have other <clears throat> cats, Scrabble would like to meet you. That's a pretty kitty, and he knows it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Scrabble is a great first start. Who's up next? Wallace. And Wallace is an orange tabby cat. He's about eight years old, has short, shiny fur, um, ready to purr in a great new home. He likes it here. He's always curled up. Uh, I, I believe he's in a colony now with some other cats, and he just he's just so cute when he sleeps. He <laughs> just has that super relaxed look. But he wants to find a forever home to have that sweet look in. Yeah, another great-looking cat. Okay, Wallace. Uh he could be your Wallace. And we've got a third cat, and that cat is? The next one will be Misty. And Misty is two years old. She can be shy, as she looks like in her picture there. She's kind of huddled up in her shoebox. <laughs> um, but she can also be quite playful, very friendly. So she's looking for somebody who understands that she likes attention on her terms. And so she needs a cat-savvy person. Um, a home with no kids is best. Uh, but she knows the right owners out there, and she's ready to meet you. Now, this is going to date me, but instead of saying, play Misty for me, you can say, play for me, Misty. There, there you go. go. <laughs> nice. Another yep. pretty kid. Well, you got the pretty ones for us today. That's just awesome. Okay. Three great cats, Scrabble, Wallace, and Misty. And uh, hours open today and tomorrow. Our great folks listening can go out and see these dogs and cats. Please visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center, and we are open Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 5.30. Charlene, thanks for all that you do, and have a relaxing weekend. Thank you. You too. <coughs> Make the Capital Humane Society the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborne, and you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next up is Lloyd Arbach. Lloyd joins us every third Saturday morning. He's a parapsychologist. An author. He's taught at the collegiate level, and he's currently offering a class through the Rhine Research Center. Uh, Lloyd, good morning, and how are you? Good morning, Scott. I'm doing fine, thanks. You've got an interesting class, an introduction to parapsychology, and uh, I printed off the syllabus. I have a friend of mine who's got a doctorate in philosophy. I'm going to show you this to you today that is really impressive. Um, what, what is your hope in teaching the class as an overview here of this class, Lloyd? Well, you know, all of our classes at the Rhine Center are designed to introduce people to concepts that so many people are interested in, but there's so much misinformation about, thanks, especially thanks to some of the, the ghost hunting shows. The Introduction to Parapsychology is really kind of the foothold class mm -hmm. for a lot of the other classes that we offer there at the Rhine Center, and it's really a survey of what kinds of, uh, of the topics, the research, the history, and even the application of psychic ability in so many different ways. Uh, it's kind of, it provides background on an ESP um, and psychokinesis, mind over matter, and of course, a little bit of background on the evidence for life after death and for uh, and what we do for ghost hunting, for basically for investigations, how we do the investigations. But it's really for people who either want to pursue further coursework around the field 
or are just interested in hearing what parapsychology has learned over the last 140 years. Uh, 140 years. It's not so new age, is it? No, absolutely not. And we kind of count the official start of the field in 1882 with the Society for Psychical Research in England. But it really, you know, there were researchers and investigators well before that as well. Mm-hmm. Back in the old days, bookstores had uh, books on parapsychology, if they carried them, in a section called The Occult. And it always seemed like it was in the corner or the back of the store. Sometimes you'd have to go through a beaded curtain to get there. Uh, and um, is that a misnomer, or is it truly uh, belongs in the occult? Well, you know, these days the, the, the header would be either metaphysics or new age, mm-hmm. both of which are also misnomers. They're all misnomers. Uh, parapsychology is a science. The thing is that people would never look for books on psychic phenomena in the science and nature area of a bookstore. Uh, so it, it's it's more of a publishing type of label, and I think the label probably started, uh, I don't know that it was there in the 50s, it was definitely there in the 60s when the so-called occult explosion happened in publishing, where publishers everywhere were publishing books you know, on metaphysics, on the occult, on psychic phenomena and all sorts of stuff, but part of the misconception was because of some psychics and other and practitioners in other fields, other areas, who just basically like to use the term parapsychology or parapsychologist to make them sound more, sound more legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, until fairly recently, you could find parapsychologists in the yellow pages, not that the yellow pages exist that much anymore, but you could find them, and a lot of the times they were psychics. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just simply because the psychics like to use that term. Mm-hmm. Um, the definition of a cult is simply hidden knowledge. Uh, right. And years ago when some of my friends said, God, Colborne, you're into that weird stuff, the occult, I would go, hidden knowledge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, who can take the yeah, class? Anyone can take the class. Um, we offer um, pretty much either for grade or for audit. So people can take anybody, pretty much anybody can take the class mm-hmm. and participate as much as they like. There are weekly lectures, which are then recorded. And then um, there's discussion forums. If people want to participate in the forums. If you're going for a grade, you kind of have to, but otherwise you don't. And there's plenty of material. This course is actually loaded with a ton of material for people to read and to watch. Yeah, the, the, uh, let me find this, uh, this link quick here. Uh, RyanEducationCenter.org slash edu. So yeah, or the new, there's a new, low, new um, URL, which is just simply RyanEDU.org. Yeah, and go there and take a look at the syllabus, folks. Uh, this is uh, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, as Lloyd said, the history of parapsychology, what it is, what it is not. Uh, examples, for example, extrasensory perception. Lloyd, as, as a uh, parapsychologist and author, can you think of one remarkable ESP experience that you've had that still to this day causes you to sit back and just shake your head and wonder? 
You know, I've had a lot of little things. Most of my ESP experiences um, have typically been fairly mundane. I think I think that one of the misconceptions about parapsychology, about psychic phenomena, is that people think that their psychic experiences all have to be major. Now, I have had a, sort of a major one um, the night before 9-11, before the planes crashed. Mm-hmm. I had uh, an unusually disruptive, I, I don't even know what to call it, I could not get to sleep until about, uh, probably until about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And then being here on the West Coast, I, I literally sat bolt upright at 5.43 um, our time, which was when the first about the time the first plane hit in New York at 8.43. I actually felt drawn to go into the living room and turn on the TV, which I would never do at that time of the morning, and watch the second plane hit. And it turned out that I was not the only person I talked to. A lot of folks on an e-group that I was with who had similar experiences to that. And, in fact, a lot of people I've talked to over over time have had similar experiences. There was a disturbance in the force, and everybody knew it. Mm -hmm. So that was a real major precognitive experience that I had. One of the gentlemen that, uh, along with you, I was so fortunate to have met uh, in my past was the late and great Martin Caden. And you've yeah. got uh, a week four psychokinesis, uh, the ability of the mind to move, manipulate, or influence an object, uh, or, uh, you know, or liquid, if you will. And so we watched Martin Caden uh, in a fairly controlled environment, <laughs> repeatedly at will, as he was joking and talking with people. You know, this was not a guy that was in like a deep yogic trance um, and, uh, you know, beads of perspiration on his forehead. He was laughing, talking, uh, passing back and forth rejoinders. And all the while, he was looking at and making this target move underneath uh, plexiglass or glass. And you and I saw it repeatedly. Well, not just just that one time that we were together, Scott, but also I visited him in his home uh, multiple times and he came out here to the West Coast Coco also. Beach, Florida. Yeah, yeah, so I, I did, some, did some serious work with him. We even did a couple other workshops besides the one in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And I have continued to teach people to do this sort of thing uh, kind of combine it with the spoon bending stuff, and uh, you know PK is a really interesting thing. We we try to study in the laboratory, and we study in the laboratory usually using computers and other devices. But it's a really phenomenal thing when you get a group of people together and you cause these things to happen because of, it's not really the group energy to move things; it's the group energy in psychology. It gets people past their inhibitions to actually accept this stuff as possible, mm-hmm. which was Marty's point all the time, is that you got to believe it's not only possible, that you can do it. Uh, uh, Uri Geller from Israel comes to mind. Uh, he's a master showman, uh, really uh, knows yeah. how to, to work an audience. Uh, is there something legitimate there? Does he also have that ability? He does, and he does and, but not all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, even Marty couldn't do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, Uri, I've known Uri a little bit over the years, and when I first met him, I can't, no, actually, it was I first sat down with him, I guess you could say. We did a TV show for Japanese television together back in the early 90s, and um, I flat out asked him, are you a psychic? You call yourself a psychic. You know, what's the deal? And 
he said, you know, because he was still very, he was very controversial even in the 90s. And he looked at me and he said, I'm an entertainer and I have psychic abilities, but everybody has psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. And that's the key. I think Uri's superpower, you know, was not in bending spoons, real or fraud, however you want to look at it. I think Uri's superpower was in motivating other people to be psychic, to, to do psychokinesis. Mm-hmm. Because that is, is an amazing talent in itself. And another guy that's famous, uh, and I'm sorry, Lloyd, for the sidebar, but uh, you're the guy to ask about these people. Another guy that comes to mind was the world-famous Kreskin. And, yeah. Uh, do you remember the famous Tonight Show where they set this up? That he was to fly in and then basically find one of the staff hidden in a building in New York City. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, every one of his shows, he would have his check hidden and he'd have to find his check. Um, Not a psychic thing. I can't tell you how he did it, but it's not a psychic thing at all. Okay. Uh, There's no doubt in my mind that he occasionally might have had psychic flashes because most mentalists, most psychic entertainers, do pay attention when something pops in their head and it tends, tends to be correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Kreskin's a mentalist. He's a psychic entertainer. And uh, I'm actually next month I'll be going to the annual meeting of the Psychic Entertainers Association. So since I'm part of that group. Interesting. Uh, Lloyd, you and I were on stage way back in the 90s, and I blew a card trick where I mishandled a deck of cards and dropped them all over the stage. You still pulled the trick off. Are for a stage magician, yeah. are, are you that good? <laughs> yeah, I am. Did you set me up? You, you, don't, you, don't, you didn't know what the trick was, Scott. You just knew what the ending was. Oh, that's that's correct. You were able to pull it off uh, or go with, a, go with the flow. The force was certainly with you that night. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say that over the years, being having you know my side career as a magician and then now as a psychic entertainer, has been very very helpful in my parapsychological work mm-hmm. in determining who's real and who's not. Um, but because my the roots of my even my psychic entertainment and my magic are in comedy, um, I'm I'm okay if people screw up things on stage with me. <laughs> mm. I'm prepared. Hey, a final word now about uh, a, a group of folks that you're very passionate about: the Forever Family Foundation. Uh, one of the legitimate things uh, that I think is wonderful about this group is that they have a screening process for mediums yeah. that they go through. So if people say, gosh, I want to try to, to, to use a medium to contact my mom or dad, uh, this is a, a foundation that has, they've gone through a process. We do have a testing process for mediums. Um, we don't teach mediums at all. We support the work of mediums. But we do a testing process, and we're looking for evidential mediums, mediums who can provide incredibly specific information, you know, names, dates, and places, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, not just platitudes, because too many of them are out there doing that. There are some fairly well-known mediums who can rely and do rely on guesswork and other things. So we really want evidential mediums, and we, we've got some great people. Uh, the testing process is not easy. I mean, I've got a good friend who is a really good medium, 
but for, I guess you could say performance issues, because she doesn't do well, she's, she has to do it long distance. Mm-hmm. Uh, she just doesn't do well with Skype, so she's not passed the test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's going to take it again. She's done it twice before, and we're trying to get her calmed about her her um, fears about technology. She's fine on the phone, but she but the but if you're not where they're doing the testing, they require it by Skype, and, and we're trying to, still trying to work that out. In fact, interestingly enough, um, no matter what she does, the technology screws up because her unconscious psychokinesis because of her <laughs> issues with technology totally screws it up. So uh, she's using PK to, to sub, self-sabotage that. Lloyd, give us a couple of uh, website links again. Sure. Um, the Rhine Center, you know, you can go to rhineedu.org or just Rhine, R-H-I-N-E dot org and then look for the education link on the left. The Forever Family Foundation's site is foreverfamilyfoundation.org and the, also you might uh, I might note that there is going to be a big mediumship conference it's, uh, with a lot of our mediums in Florida in November and we still have early bird pricing so uh, please take a look at that at the Forever Family Foundation's site we hope to see you there I'll be there of course uh, this year and we've got some great people who are going to be speaking as well uh, so, um, I also want to mention that my uh, good friend Ed May has put out, just put out the third volume of the Stargate Archives. This is actually documentation from the actual CIA Defense Department project. And the third volume just came out. It is available through Amazon. Uh, all three volumes are so far. And uh, it, the third volume is on the psychokinesis work they did. Well, okay, folks, as a reminder, uh, uh, Lloyd is teaching a intro to parapsychology class it's an eight-week class and you'll find out more about it at uh, rhine.edu is that correct no it's rhine r-h-i-n-e e-d-u dot org thank you the shortcut or rhineeducationcenter.org okay lloyd thank you so much for being here all the best to you and your family thank you scott you too uh, Lloyd Arbach, if his books aren't on your bookcase, they should be. He joins us every third week for Invisible Signals. I'm sending an invisible signal to Jim or Colleen. It's time to call our next guest. <laughs> I think Colleen got it. Okay. Yeah, you went to voicemail. We're having a great time here. You know, uh, I wanted to mention to Colleen and Jim also that we had a really wonderful uh, testimonial, an unsolicited comment from somebody on the iTunes link for our show, for the archives. Oh. <clears throat> and the individual said that she uh, thinks that we're about the best things in sliced bread and that she likes the friendly banter that we engage in and it makes her feel welcome and part and inclusive to the, to the show. Good. So... That's what we're shooting for. Our main guest today, I think you're going to enjoy. His name's Brent Rains. He's the editor-publisher of Alternate Perceptions magazine. It's been published since 1985 and online since 2001. And he's the author of Visitors from Hidden Realms and On the Edge of Reality. He's our main guest. He's coming up in just about two minutes right after this. 
Stay tuned for more Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Hi dudes and dudettes, it's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from Eagle Printing and Sign at 14th and N in downtown Lincoln. In business for over 20 years, Eagle offers a variety of printing services for first-time customers to long-time professionals, plus creative and design services. More at 402-476-8156 and eagleprintingandsign.com. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And the Nebraska Recycling Council, helping to protect the natural environment and extend the life of our landfill, reminding Lincoln and Lancaster County that corrugated cardboard will not be accepted at the landfill beginning April 1st. For more on recycling services and area drop-off sites, nrcne.org or 402-436-2384. And by Jazz in June, presenting live jazz every Tuesday in June at 7 p.m., Held outdoors near 12th and R Streets on the UNL City campus, Jazz in June offers a family-friendly environment with VIP seating and artist meet and greets available. The Jazz in June market begins each week at 5 p.m. with area food vendors, crafts, and more. Information at jazzinjune.com. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping big brothers, big sisters help a child. Start something today at bigbrothersbigsisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. It's sure great to have you folks with us. And a uh, very, very hot day here in Lincoln, Nebraska and southeast Nebraska. So if you uh, are out and about, uh, keep plenty of water with you. Definitely a large brimmed hat. And uh, if you're working outside, either for pleasure in the yard or for physical occupation, uh, just pace yourself, folks. This is the time of year that we don't want people falling flat on their face. With us is our main guest, Brent Rains. And Brent is the editor-publisher of Alternate Perceptions magazine. And uh, we'll talk about how you can get a free subscription to that. He's the author of the books Visitors from Hidden Realms and On the Edge of Reality. He's a first-time guest. Please welcome Brent Rains. 
Hi, Brent. Hey, Scott. How you doing today? Thank you so much. We're we're hot and enjoying the air conditioning. You're no stranger to hot. No, I'm not. I live down here in Tennessee, about about 100 miles, I guess, uh, south of Nashville, hmm. almost into uh, Alabama, and we're we're having a hot one here today. <laughs> Do you know where uh, Norris, Tennessee, is? No, I don't. The uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. Norris Lake. My my uh, dad's brother, my uncle, uh, lived down there. And uh, one of the anecdotes I love to talk about Tennessee is is the good-natured folks that did and still reside there. And I, I've already gotten a sense that you're one of those guys, Brent. But the first well, time... Well, I try to be. The first time <laughs> as kids, Uncle Gordon set us up. He said... Well, getting to my place is kind of hard, so I'm going to meet you at this gas station at the intersection of blank and blank. Okay, so uh, we pull up there. It's a very hot day, and he's in his uh, uh, Austin Healy with the top down, and he waves gaily at us and yells out, follow me. He proceeds to take us on a circuitous route for about 45 (laughs) minutes, and all of a sudden my brother says, Hey, we've gone by that gas station before. <laughs> and finally, Dad catches him and pulls him over, and Uncle Gordon is just laughing up and down and sideways. And it turns out that getting to his place was not hard at all. It just that he wanted us to have the, the quote-unquote scenic route. So, um, Yeah, that's important, you know, get to taking that scenic route. <laughs> so, Brent, tell me, tell me about growing up. What... Uh, <clears throat> What did you experience as a young man, either personally or at arm's length, that has really dictated a lot of your adult life and your interest in the, the unknown? Well, now, I'm, I'm not originally from Tennessee. I'm originally from Maine, so that makes me a maniac. Uh, <laughs> but I, <laughs> I uh, it, you know, I, had, I was a kid with a lot of imagination. Uh, mm-hmm. I you know, like to watch science fiction shows and mm-hmm. and uh, think about, you know, life in outer space. And and then along came the UFO wave back in 1966, <clears throat> which, you know, most of the attention was drawn on Michigan. But, you know, there were sightings all over. We had sightings in Maine, some pretty spectacular ones we were reading in the newspaper. And I remember my dad and I, we kept an eye out at night, you know, uh, looking out the window uh, mm-hmm. around the sky to see if we'd see anything at night. And we didn't, but, uh, you know, a few months later, uh, you know, when I was in school and it was the weekly reader, you remember that? And, sure. And they would sell these books and they had, uh, I think it was like 75 cents for uh, Flying Saucer's Serious Business by Frank Edwards. Frank Edwards, yeah. And, yeah, everybody, <laughs> everybody's been in this field for any length of time. A lot of us got our start back, back in the 60s with Frank Edwards. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I read that book, and, you know, I was just really impressed. I thought, you know, hey, there's really something to this. you got police officers, you got pilots, uh, people who are pretty stable, grounded observers who are seeing things landing and in the sky that can't be skyhook balloons and uh, Venus on the horizon. So what is it, you know? So about January 1967, at age 14, I became a ufologist, and I started, you know, collecting all the information I could, and soon I started, you know, writing people. I would even go uh, get on the phone and uh, call an operator 
which back then we didn't have the internet, and see if I could get uh, a phone number addressed to some of these people with these wild stories I was reading about in Edwards' book and, and other you know books and magazine articles I was gathering, you know. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going to let uh, the fact that they were in the state of Maine hold me back. And uh, me and a friend of mine named Bill, we, we started our own little UFO group and, and uh, you know, we gathered all the information we could. And that's just led into a lifelong obsession with the subject uh, <clears throat> since then. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, you know, in the beginning it was just strictly, my interest was strictly focused on the idea of, you know, is it nuts and bolts uh, extraterrestrial visitation? But then I began reading other authors uh, like John Keel and Jacques Vallée and Brad Steiger. And my horizons widened, and I began to consider parapsychological things and what today we call, you know, quantum physics and the idea of other dimensions, other realities, and how they may impinge upon this one. And so uh, I, you know, I think I was probably most impressed with, with you know, what John Keel was writing about back at the time and, and stating. And I, I began corresponding with him back in, uh, in October 1969. And I knew how he felt about uh, teenage UFO buffs, so I tried to sound as mature as I could, but I don't <laughs> think it really worked. <laughs> but uh, that's how it began, you know. And in the beginning, I, I really didn't have any experiences that I, uh, you know, I was aware of. You know, I just had this intense interest. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I have had some some strange experiences. I hadn't had a flying saucer land and go up and kick the hubcap, so to speak, on it, but I mean, I I have had, you know, definitely some paranormal-type experiences, uh, some that were kind of precognitive. I want to ask and, you uh, about, I want to ask you about one of those, but first I want to go back to to talk about Frank Edwards. Uh, the the mm-hmm. allegations surrounding how his very, very famous, long-lasting radio show ended um, have circulated for many years. Um, uh, you're probably aware of that, that uh, he had a, a, a world-famous radio show where he talked about his work, and it was underwritten, I believe, uh, by a major corporation or a company back then. That same company allegedly had Defense Department contracts, and the Air Force didn't like, so these allegations and stories go, they didn't like Edwards continually talking about flying saucers and uh, painting the Air Force as being the guys that were kind of holding the bag and not willing to come forth. So they put pressure on this corporate advertiser, and the corporate advertiser withdrew support for the show, and Edwards uh, couldn't find supporters, advertisers, and the show uh, the show ended. Is Is that the... Have you done any research in that, Brent? Is that as you understand it as well? Uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, I've, you know, heard some some things. I haven't really got to the bottom of that, but that's you know kind of what I've I've heard. And of course, I know there's been uh, some things that were made made of the fact, you know, that he died on um, around June 24th. I think it was June 23rd, actually. But there were a number of people who died around that same time period and who were involved in the UFO thing. And, and, you know, he died of a heart attack. 
and uh, and I, I think this sometimes the conspiracy stuff just kind of goes a little overboard. But uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised that there was uh, some kickback. Uh, you know, like you say, with uh, the you know the the Air Force on 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 that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I really don't have any information that I can really say. But uh, have you ever experienced that personally or professionally, Brent? Um, has anybody ever told you to uh, stop, cease, desist, to change course? <clears throat> no, I was in the uh, I was in the Navy because I was just a lowly seaman. Thank you for your service. Uh, back in seventy two to seventy four, you know, and I was all the time talking about UFOs and. No one ever approached me and told me to shut out. In fact, I was always wondering, where is naval intelligence? You know, I mean, <laughs> we, uh, you know, uh, I worked some in, in the weapons office on the ship under a, a lieutenant. And, and I, you know, I used to sometimes when I'd be in there, I'd be writing some of my letters from that desk, you know, to people. And uh, I, you know, we had some people on the ship that said they'd seen seen things. And, uh, but no one ever seemed to really, you know, I seemed to be the only one that was taking notes, you know, nobody else seemed to care. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, that's sort of, uh, but, uh, anyway, I, uh, I have never really had anyone, you know, I've, I, uh, kind of wish, I, I feel like I'm being left out. I've. You know, uh, so many people have had visits from the men in black and so on, and, and you know, I've I've just not been bothered. Uh, <laughs> what's wrong with me? <laughs> we we had one famous occurrence on the show. We've been doing this now for over 33 years, Brent, and we had a, a gentleman on the, the <clears throat> broadcast. Uh, back then it was an hour from 11 to uh, 12 noon, and uh, we had started the, the show with him. Uh, and his specialty, uh, his name's Bill Hamilton, his specialty back then was researching allegations of underground alien bases. And so uh, about the halfway mark when he joined the, the discussion, I simply said, tell us about your interest in underground alien bases and the alien presence on planet Earth. The... Brent, the radio station transmitter at that utterance went off the air. Bingo. And so um, I was recording this show on cassette tape. I continued the discussion with uh, Bill Hamilton. And then after the show was over, the, the engineer had come down and was able to restart the transmitter with about five minutes left officially in the show. We uh, resumed being on air. I drug him into the air studio afterwards Bob Malmquist, and I said, Bob, tell me what just happened. Why did the transmitter go off the air? And we talked about component failures in the tube-powered transmitter, how that would affect the transmitter and the safety protection circuit, taking it um, uh, off the air. Uh, He ruled that out, and in fact, over the next 18 months, there were no problems at all with that that transmitter. Uh, And we finally came down to several alternatives. Somebody either had entered the transmitter room and manually turned it off and then turned it back on, tripping the protection circuit, or somebody or something interfered with it from a far distance. Hmm. Yeah. 
some so, of those things make you make you wonder, don't they? <laughs> well, uh, a guy that's made me wonder uh, has been John Keel, and I so enjoyed your last uh, Alternate Perceptions magazine with the articles on and about John Keel. Uh, for people that don't know about John Keel, K-E-E-L, uh, give the folks uh, uh, a decent thumbnail sketch of who he was. Well, John Keel <clears throat> was a unique uh, and very professional writer, journalist. Um, he was born in Hornell, New York, back in 1930, March 25th. And uh, he passed away at age 79 in, in New York City, age 79 in 2009, July 3rd, Mount Sinai Hospital. And uh, he was a very accomplished uh, individual. I mean, he, uh, he uh, had one time been the science and geography editor for Funk and Wagnall's Encyclopedia. Uh, he was a head writer for uh, uh, Merv Griffin, Gene Rayburn. Um, he appeared on Johnny Carson, Jack Todd, David Letterman, and he had been a uh, member of the Screenwriters Guild and wrote scripts for Get Smart, The Monkeys, Lost in Space. And, uh, you know, he was drafted into the Army back in 1951, and he had uh, worked in Frankfurt, uh, Germany, for the American Forces Network. And, you know, he did a remote broadcast from <clears throat> inside the Great Pyramid in Egypt, and uh, another one from Frankenstein's Castle. He was always interested in, in unusual subject matter and had been interested in UFOs and things from early age. He was, in his teen years, he had uh, been reading Charles Fort, and so he became a 14. Uh, <clears throat> early on, he claimed that in 1948, he actually, uh, you know, when the UFO, the Flying Saucer Enigma was controversy, was just a, a year old, he had gone to a, uh, a UFO meeting in... New York City, um, and uh, he said all he could basically remember was a small room, and people were yelling at each other and screaming and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing much has changed, I guess. <clears throat> but uh, you know, he he um, he left his uh, hometown there and and uh, and hitchhiked to New York City at age 17 with just 75 cents in his pocket. To he was going to make his mark on the world, and he. He certainly did. He's best known, of course, for the Mothman Prophecies that was later made into a, a movie mm -hmm. with Richard Gere. And he says, you know, he used to say that uh, Richard Gere was the John Keel lookalike, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm writing a book, as, as you know, on, on uh, John Keel. And I'm, I'm showing, you know, details about about his background and his life and how he influenced the field. Uh, and Brent, when you get that book done, I want to be one of the first guys to get a copy from you and have you back on the show, too. Well, we will certainly certainly take care of that, Scott. <laughs> no problem. Can, uh, I, can I tell you a quick John Keel story? And I just, I love oh, it to hear about John. Uh, we, we had done a series of conferences here in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I invited John Keel uh, to come back, and I think one of the draws that got Heidi from afar but had never met each other. And so we brought uh, John Keel and Martin Caden to Lincoln for the, the conference. And uh, on a Saturday night, as conference organizer, I was just dead on my feet. 
We'd had a successful start for the conference. Uh, I'd been up since the early morning, not a lot of sleep the night before. And Saturday night, you know, 11 o'clock, 11.30, I was just dead on my feet. And I said, gang, I'm, I'm going home. People were just having small groups of conversation. And, and uh, so the conference was pretty mm-hmm. much put to bed for that night. Well, basically, um, had I somehow drank more coffee or mustered more internal for- fortitude, <clears throat> if I would have hung around in the lobby for just 10 or 15 more minutes, John Keel comes down from his room, walks out in the lobby, and talks to a few people, and then Martin Caden, without any pre-planning, comes down from his room, walks out, and John Keel and Martin Caden see each other. So they handshake, exchange pleasantries, they pull a couple of chairs up. And these guys, these legendary people, start to swap stories, personal anecdotes, until three to four o'clock in the morning. And they had a small group of people that were there that circled around them and pulled chairs up. And gosh, I wish I could go back and just change a couple of things, Brent, about that night. I would love to have been part of that group. Oh, I imagine, uh, you know, I I never met John Keel in person. Um, you know, we had correspondence, we talked on the phone some, but uh, I, I've kicked myself for like when he went to the Mothman Festival in 2013 that I didn't make the trip up there. You know, I have since gone to the festival, but I thought, why didn't I go to that one? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? But uh, anyway, um, yeah, uh, and I know that the, I noticed that the book that Martin Caden had written about his experiences, you know, as a pilot and, and other pilots with with UFO type phenomena, full fighters back in in, in, in World War Two, that uh, it uh, had a an introduction uh, in the front by John Keel. Yep. And uh, so now I know now I know how they met. <laughs> okay, so cool. we've got to we've got to take a top of the hour break here. But Brent, one more thing, just to maybe tie up some John Keel uh, things. The the main the main thrust that I got, Brent, from John Keel was that he wanted us to look at the evidence, look at the facts, and he wanted us, as importantly, to think. Right. Um, because he wrote me, you know, not long before he died and said that uh, he wasn't sure what, what the answer really was. He had just done his best to try to mm-hmm. uh, follow the evidence to what he thought made made sense to him and and what he thought we should look at but you know it was a uh, it was hard to really see through it all <laughs> to, to get a clear clear picture of what was happening exactly that's part of that elusive nature of the of the phenomena that we're talking about too um mm-hmm. brent it's great to have you here we're going to take a top of the hour uh break we'll be back in a couple of minutes uh, ladies and gentlemen, our main guest is Brent Rains. I'm going to spell his last name for you, R-A-Y-N-E-S. He's the editor and publisher of Alternate Perceptions magazine. And that really easy address for you is simply apmagazine.info. And if you'll go there, you can see the current issue uh, with these John Keel stories we've been referring to. You can sign up for a free um, uh, subscription. 
and I encourage you to do so. There's always something of interest in his monthly uh, magazine. Alternate Perceptions Magazine, and that uh, web address again is apmagazine.info. I'm Scott Colborn with Colleen and Jim Shorney, our main guest, Brent Rains, and you guys and gals. It's sure great to know that you're out there, and thank you so much. We'll be right back after this. and dudettes. It's Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. And... Hi, I'm Bob Henriksen, co-host on KZUM's How's It Growing, inviting you to join us for the next event in our Garden Walks and Nature Talks series as we tour the newest ornamental plantings in downtown Lincoln on Saturday, June 23rd from 10 a.m. to noon. We'll meet at Tower Square, 13th and P, and take a tour to see how the Downtown Lincoln Association is turning the area into an arboretum with a diversity of new trees, native flowers, and plants. Registration is required at downtownlincoln.org, and space is limited. Find out more at kzum.org. Celebrate our vibrant city at the KZUM Arts and Culture Festival. A free day-long celebration on Saturday, June 23rd from 1 to 9 at Antelope Park with vendors, cultural dancers, food, and more. And live music all day by Nookie Jones, the Derailers, Verse and the Vices, Adam Soul Music, Play, 23rd Vibration, and Paddywhack. Find out more at kzum.org. My name is Manny Morales. I'm 45 and I coach youth football. It's still hard to believe because the high school me was a work in progress. But big brothers, big sisters give me a real role model. And the young me needed a role model bad. My bigger brother's name is Ray. And Ray is the reason that this seven-year-old grows up to be a role model himself. Whether you donate money or time, you're helping Big Brothers Big Sisters help a child. Start something today at BigBrothersBigSisters.org. Brought to you by Big Brothers Big Sisters and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM.
Coming up next week on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena is our friend Paul Blake Smith. Uh, we talk about UFOs and flying saucers, and then we get into discussions about malfunctions, if you will, um, or intentional malfunctions. That's a sidebar we could talk about. And we talk about some of the alleged crashes of UFOs. The most famous, of course, is Roswell in 1947. But there are others. And the world's expert on what happened outside Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1941. Let me repeat that. 1941. The world's expert Paul Blake Smith, author of two books on the subject, will be with us next week. Did you ever have a chance, Brent, to uh, meet or correspond with Leonard Stringfield? Um, you know, I, I spoke with him on the phone back in 75 because mm -hmm. uh, during the summer of 75, I was traveling from Maine to Florida, going around interviewing people. And, and uh, there was a, a family outside of Cincinnati who had worked with Stringfield, and, and uh, I just you know, called him up one day to, to talk about the UFO phenomena with him. Uh, and I was, you know, this family let me kind of have a place to crash in their basement and uh, use their home as kind of a base of operation. They had a, a UFO group at the time, uh, the Ohio UFO Investigators League. It was uh, Charles and Jerry Wilhelm. And uh, they're mentioned in uh, Stringfield's book, uh, their contribution in studying a lot of the 1973 sightings around the Cincinnati area. Um, his uh, situation read uh, the mm -hmm. UFO siege, mm -hmm. and uh, so anyway, I, I was just—I <clears throat> mean—they were very, very impressed with him. And I, I've read some of his early literature, and I know that he was a, a long-time pioneer. And of course, he he studied uh, one of the last things in the field. I think that he became quite well known for was his study of uh, reports of, you know, crashed crashed saucers. Uh, in addition to Roswell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, he was very open to the paranormal elements as well, you know, which was primarily what we had talked about at the time. Mm -hmm. with, uh, with your knowledge of John Keel, uh, if, I, if I can uh, pose this and ha ask you to comment on this, Keel uh, believed that there could be some physical nature to the phenomena, but he was more interested in the psychical, paranormal, other dimensional aspects of it. Uh, if, if I, very poorly, but if I summarize that correctly, Brent, how would you contrast that then with reports of crashed UFOs, hardware, artifacts, bodies that people like Stringfield and others collected and worked on? Well, I, I uh, you know, like Keel, I mean, have to always remain open. Of um, course, I, I realize it's a very complex issue. Some, uh, you know, we, we have so many stories, but still just the, you know, lack of the actual hardware. And I know that Keel was skeptical of a lot of those stories. Uh, but by the same token, I know that uh, back in... 1976, <clears throat> he visited uh, he visited Sweden, 
and he was looking into reports of mystery submarines and the mystery air flyers, and he was um, thinking at the time that there might actually be a large bright sphere of light with his... Uh, went out riding with his mom and uh, his, uh, his uh, father-in-law and uh, his stepfather, and then uh, that was age seven, and later he talked with him about it, and he was kind of surprised that, you know, he remembered this because it was so unusual and everything. At first they thought it was a barn on fire, and then they thought it was just a round ball of bright light. And then later when he talked to his uh, mom and stepdad, they, they, uh, they didn't remember it, you know. And, of course, he became familiar with that kind of uh, phenomena a lot in later years. And uh, he... He even said at age 10 that there was a uh, people reporting like a tall, hairy gorilla-type thing that was uh, appearing on uh, crossing a road. Several people had seen it in the area he lived at in New York. And, uh, and plus the farm he was living at um, had like a poltergeist, and it would tap on the wall and he'd tap back. So I think he had kind of a unique series of experiences early on that kind of prepared him to be able to to look at things in different ways that uh, a lot of ufologists, you know, didn't, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, one of the things, Brent, that, that, that I have tried to uh, promote and gently but firmly suggest to my listening audience over the last 33 years is that that it's important to take a step back and look for links and how a lot of these alleged different aspects of the paranormal are actually connected. Uh, and I have I've championed the idea for many years that there should be more uh, cross-dimensional uh, uh, inter-department uh, communication between the fields, for example, of parapsychology, of ufology, of... Um, um, the psychical research of um, life after death. Uh, mm, right. All these, uh, yeah. that would be the, the position of Charles Fort. And I think John Keel uh, championed that as well, that we need to look at those connections because if we just try to narrowly focus on one thing, we may become an expert in that, but we'll miss all those implications and how they connect with everything else. Yeah, very often the parapsychologist doesn't want to look at anything UFO or cryptozoological and vice versa here and there. And everybody has a specialized, uh, you know, field of discipline, mm-hmm. study. Uh, but uh, when you ask them, you know, about some of these other things, as I've done, uh, they shut you down, you know. Well, we don't go into that. That's not related, you know. And then they don't really explain why. And to me, it's they're just going by the surface appearances, you know. Um, but when you statistically, you know, like close-range experiences of, of UFOs, abductees, contactees, whatever, um, and it, to me, I've studied a lot of them that, uh, you know, there there's uh, really impressive backgrounds in these people. They aren't flaky. I mean, they've they've had uh, their PhDs, some of them, who've who've held down really good, you know. Uh, respectable jobs and colleges and government and so on, and uh, it's never their experience has never affected, you know, uh, or detracted, you know, from. I mean, they've they've been able to stay the course, you know, and not uh, mm-hmm. 
they weren't fanatics. <laughs> and yet they had this incredible other life that, you know, they didn't talk about most of the time, but it was there. And, uh, and so when you look at statistically break it down, I mean, there's a high percentage of not only telepathic contact that you hear over and over again with the beings, but <clears throat> they have out-of-body experiences. They develop sometimes telekinetic thing like Uri Geller uh, or, you know, poltergeist manifestations erupt in their home, which again, you know, most people say, well, that's unrelated. Uh, Keel complained about Bud Hopkins. Um, you know, he would have these support groups for abductees. And if somebody mentioned uh, a poltergeist or out-of-body experience, they'd say, well, we don't talk about that here. But if they had a dream about the grays, well, yeah, <laughs> we'll pursue that, you know? Yep, the same, and, the uh, same uh, argument has been made about people that approached some of those researchers and said, you know, I had a profound, positive, wonderful, beneficial experience. Um, I look forward to meeting these beings again. Um, the researchers said, great, um, glad it's working out good for you. And But if they would have said, I'm being traumatized, I'm being visited every night, they're taking me against my will, I've got no power over this, uh, they said, welcome to the group. So there is a lot of selection going on. Uh, yeah, I'd, yeah, I'd like I, to bring into our conversation, Brent, uh, my friend Colleen, and I know that you're interested in reports and conversations of indigenous people. Colleen, uh, give Brent just a little bit of an idea of, of who you are. Oh, um, good morning. My name is... Uh, hi, hi, Colleen. Hi. Um, you know, my name is Colleen Newholy. I am from... Uh, the Oglala Sioux tribe of Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Um, my parents, uh, my dad is Oglala from Pine Ridge. My mom is from the Omaha Nation of Nebraska. So technically I'm both South Dakotan and Nebraska, even though I was born in Iowa. <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> um, wow. My whole life I've experienced all, all of these things, you know, the ghosts, the poltergeist, you know, seeing... It's part of life. Yeah, you know, like I've seen, like I always try to tell people, I've seen everything, you know, I've seen UFOs, I've seen cryptids, ghosts, you know, experienced poltergeists. Um, I do I do know that I have some sort of, as people call it, you know, psychic gifts, but for us it's just like, well, you're you're naturally gifted, you know, you're, you know, if you could tell where objects are, that's great because, you know, you don't want to lose your wrench or your screwdriver or car whatever. Keys. Car keys. <laughs> when you live out in the middle of nowhere because, you know, Pine Ridge is, ice, is pretty isolated. You know, there's, there's no paved, really, really, there's no, really no paved roads. It's all like, like not even dirt roads even. It's just like these trails that are going all over the place. Colleen, you would be comfortable then with, uh, with Brent because I know through his newsletters that he's also interested <laughs> in uh, not only historical reports, but indigenous people's reports. Um, and there's a number of artifacts that pop up that convince us uh, that something has existed for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that, uh, that you and others from a Native American background have always said that, um, that it's only the white Western European culture that separates things and puts things into neat little boxes Whereas other people in the world accept it as just being part of life. It's yeah. part of the whole web of 
the whole mystery of life. Yeah, it's just like it's it's just how reality works. Because um, you know, like like what me and my mother were were discussing the other night with. Uh, I can't remember what movie we were watching. I think it was A Beautiful Mind. We were watching A Beautiful Mind with um, Dr. Nash uh, because my mom, mm-hmm. my mom had been uh, at school. She was taking philosophy and she was taking, uh, what's that word again, game theory classes. And she said that uh, me and my siblings have always been interested in you know, physics and metaphysics and, you know, our, our, our traditional spiritual beliefs. And that we've always been, like, one step a- ahead of even most most uh, people who come to her to ask her for, you know, these teachings. And that was because from a young age we were taught that, you know, all of this happens and and that it just happens because every, this is how reality works. Mm. Brent, uh, uh, please go ahead. Well, I was going to ask uh, Colleen, uh, how about the, the UFO phenomena? Have you had any experiences um, with that? Yeah, I have. Uh, I've seen um, what are called false stars. Like, you know, they'll drift in the sky and look like stars, and then next thing you know, they're zooming around and, you know, making loop-de-loops and eight figure eights and that kind of thing, and then they're, you know, gone. Um, I've seen uh, the, the multicolored lights. And this is mostly been in Pine Ridge. You know, it's isolated. No, you know, there's really no cities anywhere nearby, so you can tell what's air traffic and what's not. So, so uh, I've seen a lot of you know those blinking lights. Um, we've seen some of those big orbs, and we've seen uh, triangle craft. Um, and I think once, and this is like a very very faint memory. Uh, when we were out there for our Sundance, and I'm not going to talk about Sundance, I'm just going to talk about, you know, our camping experience with that. Um, I remember that w- at one point we had uh, our tent, and that tent had like one of those openings at the top where it's just mesh, and we had the top off because it was so darn hot, you know, because it's summertime and it's like really hot in mm-hmm. uh, South yeah. Dakota. And I remember me, and I think it was my younger brother. We were the only ones awake. Everybody else was asleep. My parents were off at the ceremony. And we were watching the stars, and we could see something. It was, like, huge, kind of circular, kind of octagonal. And it was like it had, like, these panels that were mimicking the rest of the stars above the, above, above the object. Because it looked like it was like the, like kind of like rippling on the edges, almost the chameleon effect. Yeah, like a chameleon. But the only thing it could see was like just a slight, very slight warping around the edges that get, that was giving it away, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, very interesting. Yeah, that's um, that's intriguing. That you know um, that the Aboriginal cultures would would have this this insight and uh, understanding. And and one of see, one of my first experiences uh, with, was back in the 70s with a, a Sequanahawk medicine man in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I was introduced to him by a, uh, a lady in Ohio who was a contact experiencer who had some Iroquois ancestry, and she told me about her experiences with him. So I went down a couple of times to meet him at his home in Pennsylvania, he and his wife, and uh, he talked about 
uh, these beings named the Udushqua, who were very tall ETs that had been uh, with his people going back to uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years, mm-hmm. you know, into the past, and had been guardians, protectors. And uh, he, uh, he was only, I think, four when he built a prayer mound in the shape of a, of a turtle. And he said they, they would build these mounds and they would pray upon them. And the lady in Ohio was having one built under his instruction mm-hmm. um, on a uh, on a site where she had years earlier, uh, back in the late 50s, encountered this lemon ball-shaped uh, light mm-hmm. that appeared and communicated with her. That was her first experience. And so she wanted this mound, which he would put crystals into the ground, into the mound as well. Uh, to aid in communication and healing. And uh, so that was my first experience with, you know, the Native American um, awareness. And he talked about these beings being uh, spiritual and spirit as well. And he talked about communicating and interactions with elementals. And uh, he talked about them coming into his house, uh, showed um, showed me an envelope that, his wife had drawn this craft they had mm-hmm. seen with, with fire coming out of these little ports on it, called it a fire canoe, and it landed in their backyard back in 1961. And he was, this was in 75 when I visited him, mm-hmm. or 76. Yeah, I guess it was 76. And, uh, you know, they still had the envelope, so they, they showed it to me and uh, told how these they were real tall and they bent down and they came in uh, into the house and told about this light that would come out of the back between the shoulder blades and then this light that came out um, somewhere in the front. I think it might have been a forehead or something, but maybe, well, I'd have to check. But uh, anyway, what was interesting is he said the light would come out about a foot from the body and stop. And I didn't know at the time, but, you know, I have since heard that same description a number of times from other in other cases, other experiences where a light would uh, a UFO light would sort of be like a column of light and it would come out so far and then just stop and there's nothing there for it to stop on, you know. And mm-hmm. and I guess what made me pay attention to it was when I saw a, uh, some columns of light shooting up in the sky and they were going very slow and then they would stop and they would go up a little and stop and then they hit these clouds overhead and then they retracted. And what was odd about that, too, is that I had predicted that something was going to be in the sky at that time, and Mm -hmm. I had a couple of witnesses with me. Uh, So, yeah, I can see a lot of uh, interconnections and and a lot of uh, Native cultures um, being aware of these things. And, uh, in fact, there was a college professor that I got to hear his talk uh, one time in Virginia, who had been all over the world studying indigenous cultures, Siberia, South America, and so on. And someone in the audience asked him about UFOs, and he said, yeah, many of your shamans all over the world do talk about interactions with UFO beings, and most of them are quite positive experiences. He says, "Uh, but you don't see any of this in the anthropological literature because anthropologists just don't really know about this aspect, and, you know haven't caught on to it yet, you know, uh, don't realize a lot of them that it's even there to address. A lot of these folks uh, are very closed to outsiders, 
naturally wary, uh, as they should be. Uh, mm -hmm. I met a gentleman who was at the Rocky Mountain UFO conference years ago in Laramie, uh, who was an engineer for the Alaskan pipeline. And he was a great big guy, six foot eight, close to 300 pounds, very large man. And it was his job as kind of an advanced guy to go to remote parts of Alaska where the pipeline was going to be built and introduce himself to uh, native people, Indians, Eskimos, uh, let them know from his face and mouth to theirs what they could expect, what was going to happen, and also to carry back their concerns back to the company he worked for. So he befriended this, uh, this Indian who was the head of a, uh, a local uh, a clan or a tribe, if you will, and it took a good six months before they felt like there was a level of trust between them. And at that point, when the uh, American Indian elder figured out that he was legitimate, uh, then he opened up. And he, Brett, he said to this big, brilliant engineer one time that he was going to be gone for a little bit. And uh, the engineer said, are you going on vacation or taking a sabbatical? And he said, no, every year. Uh, a group of, of us go to the base of this mountain in a nearby mountain range and we encamp there uh, to pay our respects to um, the people that helped us so many years ago. And with that, he held his hand up and pointed his finger up in the air. And so he was referencing, uh, I'm going to use the term star people, that interacted with his tribe many, many years ago and helped them so every year they go back to this mountain range to encamp and pay respect to, to that knowledge. Have you encountered that same thing, Brent, that connection? That you know, there's, a, there's an uh, American, um, um, she was an American anthropologist, and uh, she had also a background in, in psychology, and she, she lived in a small town um, northwest of Rio de Janeiro and she used to in fact she used to go around because she spoke Portuguese and she used to be a, a guide for um, Bob Pratt who was a well-known journalist who studied a lot of uh, uh, he made about 14 trips to Brazil to study the phenomena down there and she was telling me that she wanted to try to get more information that there were these brothers they were three brothers who were like anthropologists who would go out and meet different aboriginal cultures to try to gather information. And as I recall, and, and she was, you know, um, I think they, you know, it was years later and uh, I think they had, had died, but she was trying to contact family to see if she could get a copy of the records, but she's since passed away too. But uh, I, I did an interview with her before she passed and she she described this, and um, they had told in interviews that there was uh, a group of Aboriginal people who uh, would go out and meet these star beings who would come down in these, you know, machines, and they would get out and they would converse with them and um, talk, you know. And I think I think that. Uh, one or more of these brothers actually saw this exchange actually take place. 
uh, and she was trying to gather, you know, a copy of their records or something. And uh, and I don't know that she was ever successful um, because it wasn't too many years after that that she passed on. She moved back to the United States because she was she had lived down there in Brazil for quite a number of years, uh, maybe three decades, and, uh, and then she was getting kind of kind of old and not able to. Uh, take care of herself that well so she had to move back with family in california brent it's time for our bottom of the hour break here so let me take that and i'm enjoying the conversation and really appreciate you taking time from from your saturday morning to be with us so if you'll stay right there we'll be right back uh colleen and jim it's great to have you both here and guys and gals uh it's great to have you out there we had a call from lawn and Lon, good morning to you. Hope you're doing well, you and Mary. More conversation with Brett Rains coming up right after this. Carol Griswold from Women's Blues and Boogie on your community radio station, 89.3 FM, KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD.
Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from The Bay, The Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern, and The Zoo Bar. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Saturday, June 16th brings Swing Fever to The Zoo Bar at 6, followed at 9 by Disenchanter, Laughing Falcon, and High Ruler. That's what's happening this week in Lincoln. KZUM's Summer Concert Series at Stransky Park continues on Thursday, June 21st at 7 p.m. with the rock, soul, and R&B of The Fay and the gospel-tinged blues and roots of Emily Bass and The Near Miracle, plus food by Helia. Lawn chairs and blankets are welcome. This year, we celebrate 15 years of free music in beautiful Stransky Park at 17th and Harrison with performances every Thursday through August 9th. Brought to you with support from Dietz Music, Rabble Mill, the Lincoln Arts Council, Augstum's Printing, and Brian Health. Find out more at kzum.org. The full moon lights the silver rails winding around dark mountains and over steep gorges of jagged rock and one freezing cold rushing black mountain river. I wish there was enough time to describe all of the funny twists and turns that led up to now, but there isn't enough time because there's a ticking clock and the two passengers we care most about don't know anything about it. To see what happens next, visit read.gov to read The Exquisite Corpse, a riveting adventure pieced together by John Sheska, Shannon Hale, Daniel Handler, and other popular authors. Explore new worlds. Read. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. Scott Colborn with Jim and Colleen. We are exploring unexplained phenomena. Uh, our guest is Brent Rains, and Brent is the editor and publisher of Alternate Perceptions magazine. That uh, easy web address is apmagazine.info. Brent, what can people expect when they sign up for your magazine? Well, Chris, uh, they can sign up. Um, what kind for, of a magazine is it? Okay, well, it's 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 actually one that covers UFOs uh, and all full spectrum of the paranormal. It could be near-death experiences. Uh, could be, you know, parapsychological studies, ghost hunting, or um, could be about shamanism. Uh, my co-editor, Dr. Greg Little, who is a Memphis, Tennessee psychologist, and who's been deeply involved in uh, mysteries of the ancient world. He's written an encyclopedia on Indian mounds and earthworks that's in its second volume now. And uh, he's also the author of People of the Web, which deals with UFO, archetypal, uh, paranormal, ancient Native American ceremonies and things all into one little bundle, uh, which has become pretty much a classic, I think. That was published back around 1990. Mm -hmm. And um, he's written a number of other books. And um, he does a, a column called Trek, which cites various places across the United States that people can go and uh, visit uh, mounds and earthworks that, uh, you know, they're still there to be seen. Of course, so many have been 
unfortunately destroyed some great sites, but there's still some really nice ones out there that uh, people can go and and uh, my wife Joan, who's got Cherokee on both, or been always been told she had Cherokee on both sides of her family, is vitally interested in in, in the Native American things, and we've gone with Greg and Laura uh, different times for um, uh, these mound tours that that they give. We've gone as as um, you know to help with meditation and things like that at these sites and i have what are called the Peruvian whistling vessels which really help to induce kind of an altered state of consciousness with a lot of people and we take drums and rattles and uh you know try to give people a, a sense of you know the spiritual at these sites and and we've had you know people describing some pretty pretty interesting things you know seeing spirits and, and having memories come to them of maybe past lives and things and and uh some of it's been kind of bewildering, <laughs> um, quite fascinating, too. We've been to Ohio, West Virginia, Georgia, uh, sites in Kentucky, um, and uh, we hope to do some more in, in the future. And these have been sponsored by the Association for Research and Enlightenment, you know, the, the Edgar Casey organization. So... I don't know. I may have gone off and rambled a little there. but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> a little, uh, little background. Like like speaking of um, the mounds, um, there's actually a few mounds. I'd say a couple hun- couple mi- hundred miles away from here in um, Blood Run, which is near uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, been I've been there a few times with my mom. We've been up there at Blood Run, and today my mom is in uh, St. Louis. Is it Illinois? Missouri. Missouri. St. Louis, Missouri. I keep getting those two mixed up for some reason. Um, and she's going to be going to the Cahokia site today, this this oh, evening. Oh, Cahokia, yeah. Um, because, That's on my kick the bucket list. Yeah, because like... <laughs> I, haven't, uh, I haven't been yet, but it's spectacular. Yeah, because like my mom, um, another story that she was telling us was that uh, a lot of the tribes that had, you know, that are now populating and had been populating the Midwest uh, had once um, participated in building and maintaining Cahokia um, because it was, as, as she calls, um, a trade city. And this is another thing that anthropologists and archaeologists don't understand is that a lot of these leftover um, areas were, had, had been inhabited at one point or another. But what they don't realize is that because of um, changing you know, changing environment and whatnot, everybody started dispersing and moving away from old and original areas. Yep, so following when food and water. Yeah, so like when they're saying like, oh, we don't know who built this, we don't know where they went, they just disappeared. It's kind of like, um, no, they just moved on. <laughs> they didn't go poof and vanish into thin air. They just, you know, maybe went to the east or a little bit to the north or to the south. They really didn't leave. They just, or disappeared. They just kind of moved on a bit so brent are you also interested in the study of unknown or unexplained animals cryptozoology uh yes i uh, in fact i touch upon that in, in the book that i i have coming out uh about keel and he had this interest in not just the moth man from mm-hmm. west virginia but also bigfoot and other cryptids and mm-hmm. uh he had talked about how just like an hour's from just an hour's drive from, you know, New York City, you could go to places where Bigfoot was seen. And I actually went an hour drive from 
New York City area, down to Somerville, New Jersey, and they had a lot of activity with Bigfoot there, uh, balls of light, UFOs, poltergeists, and uh, back in 1977, it seemed to be a real, real active place. Mm-hmm. And uh, I even dropped in, you know, Dr. Swartz, uh, Bristol Swartz was a sure. prominent uh, psychiatrist, parapsychologist who was very interested in UFOs, and I think that was primarily because of John Keel. And uh, I dropped in to see him and kind of compare notes. He, he was interested in all that. He, he looked and, like uh, Wild Bill Hickok. <laughs> yeah, he was, uh, he was rather distinguished uh, uh, psychiatrist, and uh, he, was, um, he was very, very open and easy to talk with. Uh, when I was sitting there in his office, you know, I noticed he had, a, he had these, uh, he would keep notes of anything that happened, and I, I never knew what it was, but every once in a while I'd say something, he'd make a quick note, in, uh, on a on an index card and then slip it into a desk drawer. <laughs> and but I didn't want to interrupt the flow of our mm-hmm. conversation, so I just mm-hmm. pretended I didn't notice, you know. But uh, he uh, he had met so many interesting people and was involved in so much. And he helped, you know, with my magazine uh, back when he was alive. He would arrange for interviews uh, with a lot of the the old-timers, you know, in, in the uh, field. Alex Emick of, mm-hmm. of New York, the Polish-born parapsychologist mm-hmm. who lived to be 111, still living at home in New York City. And, uh, you know, the amazing Kreskin. And so we had some <laughs> some great, great interviews. Mm-hmm. Brent, uh, how has your interest in the paranormal over the years, how has it shaped, changed, or modified your religious or spiritual views? Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely changed it, you know, um, I've, I, I haven't, you know, it's, um, it's kind of complex. It's, it's, I I think I, I can kind of identify, um, you know, with the, the open spiritual belief systems, say, of the Native Americans, um, and, you know, kind of, I'm at this exploring <laughs> open stage. Uh, you know, I, I, back in 75, I kind of freaked out over it, and, and I, uh, I uh, you know, got with the group, accepted Christ, and I thought, okay, you know, I'm, I'm going to deal with this. And then I, I found out that all these different groups, you know, they required, well, you got to do this to be saved. You got to do that. And I think, wait, they they really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> they're all on different pages. Um, and uh, I I remember this one night, everything came to a head. And this was like around October of '75, and it was May of '75 that I accepted Christ. And then I went across country from Maine to Florida, meeting people and trying to get to the bottom of it. And uh, you know, I thought, man, I I, I I'm really this is really uh, difficult to address, and, and I decided, uh, I tried it with my head, you know, so I tried to open my heart up and say, okay, God, just show me a sign, but, you know, don't let it be something that's going to scare me. I, in other words, I wanted a vision, <laughs> you know, and uh, and I got one about two nights later when I wasn't expecting anything to happen. But to me, it was, and, and I thought I was physically walking across the darkened bedroom floor where I had just 
crawled into bed, and suddenly I'm, I'm like up on my feet, and uh, I'm like, why am I, what am I doing, you know? But I really didn't, uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and it didn't seem to bother me. Hey, you know, I'm taking a walk across the floor, and then I stop. And at this point, I'm aware that there's someone standing behind me, and they're the reason I'm stopped. But instead of doing what I normally would do, look around, say, hey, hi, I'm Brent, you know, I just continue to look straight uh, toward the, the door that leads out of the hall, which there's a, a light on out there. My, my bedroom is dark. And I just continue to look out there, and suddenly there's all these glowing, translucent, marble-sized balls of light, like hundreds of them, just swirling, swarming around from the ceiling down to the floor. And then they seem to take the form of a four-legged animal. And uh, then I'm back in bed, and I'm, I find myself back in bed, and I'm looking up at the ceiling. And, uh, I mean, this just happened a few seconds, and it's over, you know. And my father, who was making a last-minute pit stop before, you know, going to bed, he, he was still in the bathroom. And uh, so I knew that this had just all happened within a matter of moments. And um, anyway, uh, I soon after that, I became involved in investigating uh, some you know, a case and some, uh, that led to some other cases that I, I think this was all kind of maybe preparing my, preparing me to look at, uh, visions and how these things work and, uh, some of the symbolisms and, and whatnot. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I know that sounds strange, but, uh, no, it sounds like you've got a compass and internal guidance system that you feel connected to a divine source and that you feel at times like you're being guided and led. Um, and I would congratulate you on that guidance and I would, I would hope that everybody listening can for themselves establish that same connection to receive that same assurance and that same guidance, no matter if it's a, a formal affi affiliation yeah, I, I, with something or if it's a semi-formal. Uh, Brent, I've got to warn us here that we've got about 60 seconds left here, so. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of things to talk about, but 60 seconds, I don't know what else well, to let's say. Ha let's uh, have wanna... you back for your, your book on John Keel. We'll talk some more then. Um, great, great. What does Brent Rains well, do for fun? Oh, man. Um, well, I've got grandkids uh, my my daughter lives right next door and so uh there's never a dull moment around here with uh, a two-year-old and a 10-year-old <laughs> uh <laughs> never a dull moment and so uh you know and of course i uh try to divide some time out to you know work on this book and to uh, uh put out a monthly magazine online and uh i am the editor but i'm really not the publisher um my friend Greg Little over in Memphis has been taking care of that for a number of years. Oh, thanks for that correction. And, uh, I appreciate that. No problem. I want to give everybody due credit for what they do. Well, I've enjoyed, but, uh, uh, Brent, having you on the program here. And again, I was so delighted to uh, become a subscriber to your monthly magazine, uh, Alternate Perceptions. And this last issue, folks, you've got to read the, the stories about um, John Keel. They're just uh, wonderful. So, Brent, uh, thank you so much for taking time to be with my audience this morning. And I want you to know that uh, I feel a, a real affinity for you and your work. 
and that the door is open to you to come back here and be a guest again. Well, thank you, Scott. And uh, Colleen and Jim, uh, I uh, enjoyed, you know, interacting with all of you. <laughs> so uh, I will come back for sure. Um, appreciate it. It's oh. been a, a, a pleasure. Okay, Brent, thank you so much. Uh, Brent Rains, I'll spell his last name, R-A-Y-N-E-S, Brent Rains. He's the editor of Alternate Perceptions magazine, and it's been published since 1985 and online since 2001. You can subscribe uh, freely, and it's something that I recommend that you do so. The web address is apmagazine.info. Uh, who's up next week? Well, we've got our friend Paul Blake Smith. His first book was called M.O. 41, The Bombshell Before Roswell. And it details at great length the crash of something that occurred outside of Cape Girardeau, Missouri in 1941. His second book is Three Presidents, Two Accidents, More MO41 UFO crash data and surprises. He's our guest next week. Two weeks from today, William Stillman, The Secret Language of Spirit. On July 7th, it's my pleasure to welcome back Mark Nesbitt, The Ghosts of Gettysburg, Volumes 1 through 8. And Volume 8 is just coming out. Peter Robbins joins us on July 14th. July 21st, Joel Green. His brand new book, Robber's Cave, Truth, Legends, and Recollections. Jim, you've got a copy of that. Yes, I do. Great book. I can't well, wait to get one as, as well here. It's very well done. <clears throat> okay, stay tuned for um, Vic with Mesoterra, and he's coming up next. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Scott Colborn. Colleen, great to have you here. Yep, you're, you're welcome. Jim, thank you very much for all that you do. Great show today. And uh, Mr. Brent Rains. Uh, Brent, thank you so much for being here. Folks, uh, find out more at apmagazine.info. On behalf of all of us listening, thank you so much. And until next week, walk in beauty. <laughs>